Our reading this morning is in Ephesians chapter 5, as we continue our studies there in that fifth chapter. Ephesians chapter 5, we commence to read at verse 15. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. We'll be considering verse 21 very shortly in this service. Our text this morning is found in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, a short verse which reads, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, the last couple of weeks we've been looking at these uh, verses from verses 19 and 20 and 21 and seeing that they describe to us uh, aspects of what it means to live a spirit-filled life. We know that you cannot be a Christian unless the Spirit of God comes to dwell in our hearts. It's the Spirit who first begins to convict us of our sin, makes us aware that we have fallen short of God's glory. But it is also the Spirit then who then points us away from ourselves uh, towards to look at the Lord Jesus Christ. We've read the account of the life of Jesus in the Gospels, but the Spirit of God now applies that life to our hearts. We see him live a perfect life, the life we haven't lived. We see him die a death which we all deserved. And the Spirit of God enables us to understand that that life was lived and that death was endured so that we could be saved from our sins and made right with God. And it's that same spirit then that gives us then an an assurance. He bears witness in our hearts, 
that we are his and that he is ours. And that we are now, though once orphans, far in the storm, away from God's home, we have now been brought into the family of God. We are part of the flock, the sheep of God's flock and his fold. And also then, the Spirit of God begins this wonderful work of changing us, altering us, making us more like the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, whereas to be justified by faith is a, a once-off declaration, it's, it's a, an act once and forever, sanctification is a process. And this takes the whole rest of our lives Slowly and surely we begin to be changed and altered. It's not a, a path that leads constantly upwards. There are dips. There are difficulties. Sometimes we fall back. For sometimes we, we, we struggle. But the Spirit of God continues to bear testimony in our hearts. And what we see here then are three very clear examples of what it means to live the Spirit-filled life. We noticed, uh, firstly, it is a joyful life. A Christian is something, a something and someone to sing about. Also, last week we looked at the fact that the Christian's life, a spirit-filled believer, is thankful, counting the blessings. Of course, we live in a difficult time. We live in hard, hard days as believers and also in the context of our own family life, the health issues that we're facing. But we still have cause to be thankful. Now, this morning, we're going to come to this third, uh, um, the third, or the last of the three that I mentioned here. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, some of the commentators wonder whether this verse is the beginning of a new se- section uh, in this epistle, in this letter of Paul's. But we can, in one sense, say that it is both the end of something and the beginning of something. It illustrates very clearly to us Uh, a principle uh, that helps us to understand what the spirit-filled life looks like. And also then, it is not only that general principle, but also then we notice it is the introduction to three specific examples of where submission is required with regards to the relationships between husband and wife. That's the end of chapter 5. And then the relationship between children and parents. That's the opening verses of chapter 6. And then thirdly, you have also the relationship between slaves and masters or employer and employee, you could say. And we will consider now this morning this subject of submission by first of all looking together at some misconceptions about submission. There's a lot spoken about this. Uh, And sometimes church leaders uh, can be very heavy-handed and uh, very aggressive, almost, you could say, manipulative. And it's that sort of word. When you speak of the word submission, this is what you see it. You see it in family life, uh, a dominant individual who dominates the family, makes everybody submit to their will. And so uh, the word submission, I suppose, takes on a, a bit of a negative element, And probably we can identify with that. But there are misconceptions, and we must begin there. For most people then, when they hear this word today, they may have been taken back immediately to the schoolyard. They may have a memory. 
of being in the schoolyard and this older individual, a boy or a girl, they've got you up against the wall and, uh, and they're, they're doing something to you and then uh, perhaps they grapple you onto the floor and then they're holding you and then they say, now, submit. Say, I submit to you. And you, you're not willing and then they keep squeezing you until, until the end with tears in your eyes you, you have to say, I submit. And you've given in to them. Now some people think of submission like that. And you can understand how that experience when you talk about submission to one another, submission to the Lord God Almighty, well it, it brings fear and anxiety in your hearts. And so you step back from it. You wouldn't consider it. Or perhaps uh, those of us who uh, lived in the, in the 60s on a Saturday afternoon would watch the, the wrestling matches that were put on. And again, you have the, the two strong individuals and you can't make a difference between them to begin with. But then you, you notice one has uh, the other in an arm lock. And then the rules and regulations are three taps on the shoulder indicate that that person, he can't speak, but he's, he's, he's giving in, he's submitting, he's yielding. Biblical submission is not to be thought of in that way. However, we understand it. Now, there is one, perhaps, example that we could turn to this morning in the Old Testament. Uh, we remember one of the patriarchs, Jacob. Jacob is in a wrestling match with a, with a man, or is it an angel? And uh, they're wrestling until daybreak. But however we understand what is happening there, let's not uh, forget that it wasn't that the, the, the angel or the man uh, was seeking to subdue uh, and, and, and cause uh, Jacob to, to bow down. But it was more that Jacob was holding on to him and wouldn't give in until he said he had been blessed. So we have to be careful with regards then to thinking about what submission means. Another misconception is to see submission as an acknowledgement of inferiority. If you submit to someone, you're admitting you're, you're inferior. Well, is that the, the biblical concept? One is superior, the other is inferior. One is better than the other and pressing home their advantage. But again, it's very clear from Paul's other letters. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 3 is an example. Uh, that we are to do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourself. Biblical submission, then, is not something that can be forced upon an individual. If you've been forced to do something uh, by a, a, a church leader, you've been forced to do something by your, your wife or your husband, if you've been forced to do something by your parents or by your children, uh, well, in one sense, that's not biblical submission. Biblical submission is not something that can be forced upon any individual. To, to do that would undercut the whole premise of, of what it means here. We shall go on to see that what it does include is that it includes a, a ready willingness to consider others before ourselves. A voluntary disposition to work alongside and at times under the direction of others. 
And we can consider this by way, perhaps, of thinking of a, of a, of a team. Again, a rugby team, a football team, a, a hockey team. Well, you have a, you have a captain, don't you? Think perhaps uh, of the only really uh, English football team that we can talk about this morning. Uh, the one that won the World Cup in 1966. Uh, how sad is that? That that's the, the only English team we can talk about that has ever achieved any sense of perfection and the pinnacle of the, of the game. But I'm sure if you were to discuss uh, uh, anything about that, if you were to say that the captain, uh, Robert Moore, Bobby Moore as he was known, was, uh, was the best footballer of all, well, you'd have people who would discuss that with you in, and vehemently perhaps, depending on what team they supported. Of course, Bobby Moore was the captain. But did that mean that uh, he uh, was the, the player of all, above all, and everybody else on the field, the other ten, uh, were, were subservient to him, and were in one sense inferior to him? Well, I'm sure we would not agree with that. We had that wonderful goalkeeper, Gordon Banks. We had Nobby Styles in defence. We had Bobby Charlton in, in, in attack. No, they all played their part, but there had to be a, a captain who, uh, in one sense, uh, had to make some decisions on the field. Would we automatically also conclude that uh, someone who is the deputy prime minister is inferior to the prime minister? Now, the first prime minister of, the, of Great Britain was a man called Robert Walpole. He uh, was recognised as the first prime minister, and he remained in that position for 21 years. No one's come anywhere near uh, that length of time, from 1721 to 1742. Uh, but did that mean that he was a superior individual with regards to his humanity? Of course not. Without a chain of command, we know an army cannot advance successfully. A navy cannot engage effectively. But did that mean then that uh, people like the Duke of Wellington or Admiral Nelson were more human and were superior uh, than the soldiers and the sailors that fought at Waterloo and at Trafalgar? Well, again, we would say, no, we understand there is to be a submission of a soldier or a sailor, a submission of an MP to a, to a party leader, uh, a submission, an agreement, an understanding of a football player with the captain. With regards to the ordering of relationships, so that things can be achieved, so that things can be accomplished. It has always been the case that there must always be respect for the captain and for the prime minister and the general and the admiral for the line of command to succeed. If it is forced upon individuals, it will not produce anything lasting. These are some of the reports that we are receiving from the battlefield in Ukraine. You see, you can be in a position as, a, as, a, as an officer, as a, as a captain. But if you're asking uh, those, perhaps, who are serving with you to do things that you yourself are not prepared to be involved with, well, you can understand then how there becomes a, a sense of dissatisfaction. It has to be voluntary. There has to be willingness 
to undertake these tasks. So that, I hope, deals with some of the misconceptions about submission. But secondly, this morning, I want us to look at this text again and realize that there is what is called mutuality here. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submit to one another. This is a principle that undergirds all relationships. There is to be a consideration of one another. The spirit-filled life is, as chapter 4 of Ephesians reminds us, it is a life worthy of the calling that you have received. That's how verse 1 of chapter 4 uh, introduced it to us. Uh, also observe in that same chapter, chapter 4 and verse 2 and 3, we're reminded that we are to be completely humble and gentle, to be patient, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is then a thoughtfulness that is given to what we will do and what we will say. There is a right regard given to others. A spirit-filled believer is not dominated by selfishness. It's a quaint story which I'll share with you, you've heard it from me before, of two people waiting for a train and they went to the buffet room to order a pot of tea. And they found that all that was left with regards to uh, the cakes was one cream cake and a very dry Welsh cake. So on bringing the tray to the table, one of them reached immediately for the cream cake and put it on their plate. The other individual said, If I had been given first choice, and you asked me what cake I would have liked. I would have answered the Welsh cake. And the other person, completely out of touch, said, well, that's what you've got. Pour the tea. Now, in one sense, you could see that there was a lack now of consideration. Of course, the simple answer would have been to cut both cakes in half and have half each. But... You can see something of the, of the attitude. You can see something of this pushing yourself forward rather than thoughtfulness and consideration. Lack of consideration, lack of thoughtfulness, lack uh, being selfish then is the very opposite of what a spirit-filled believer will be. Neither is there to be an, an aggressiveness or a brashness in our dealings with one another. How easy it is, I find this one of my difficulties, uh, to jump to conclusion. Easily jump to give my opinion as well, uh, when hearing perhaps not the full details, not even waiting for the full details to be, I've already, uh, in two or three sentences, come to conclusion. And uh, my opinion, that's the only opinion, really. And it causes great difficulties and problems. Now, certainly, we will need to turn to the opening book uh, of the Bible, the book of Genesis, and the opening chapters uh, to help us when we begin to uh, understand the relationship between a wife and a, and a husband. 
But before we would come to think of that, in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 27, this mutuality is very, very clearly underlined in the very first chapter of the Bible. Genesis 1 verse 27 reads, So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Although it is a a matter of great difficulty today when people are talking about gender fluidity. Here is a a very clear declaration with regards to uh, what God created. But also for us this morning, what we see here is that there was equality here. He created both male and female. Instant equality is emphasized. No inferiority before God. So whatever society might have developed from that point, uh, whatever sort of cultural norms uh, and mores that became acceptable in terms of looking at an order of a a dominance of one uh, over the other, uh, we can clearly see that originally there, there was to be equality. But there must always be consideration, always to be thoughtfulness. Always to be unselfishness, no arrogance or aggressiveness for any sense of well-being to be achieved in the context of a family, of a workplace, or of a church. Now thirdly this morning, having put aside some of the misconceptions, seeing that the, the main thought is mutuality, thirdly let's look at the motivation for this principle of submission in a Christian's life. And the verse again is very, very helpful. It tells us uh, clearly, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Out of reverence for Christ. A believer is someone who has willingly, gladly, readily placed themselves under the lordship of Jesus Christ. We saw it in that uh, short little video with the boys and girls this morning. Joshua was the leader. He had taken over from Moses. He's now going to be the captain to lead them. And uh, as he meets this man or this angel, uh, he asks the question, well, whose side are you on? Are you on my side or are you an enemy? And then the, the individual responds and says, no. Uh, the question is, It's not, am am I on your side, Joshua? Joshua, the question is, are you on my side? Because I am the captain of the Lord of hosts. Now, now in that, you see this all-important picture that each and every one of us has to answer. Whose side are we on? Are you on the Lord's side? Or are you on your own side? Or are you, you serving other things? Well, a Christian is someone who can answer that. Yes, there was a time when I I played in the opposite team. I played according to different rules. But now I've come, I've been translated, transferred. I've been moved from there to this new situation. And now I have a new captain. I have someone whom whom I willingly, voluntarily, gladly submit to. Well, they say, well, why? You shouldn't submit to any man. You're strong enough to... Ah, no. I couldn't save myself. 
I tried to save myself and it just got me further and further down in the gloom and the darkness. Because I could never even come up to my own standard, let alone read about God's standard. But he saved me. He saved me. I couldn't do it myself. And ever since then, I've been glad to walk with him, to, to read his word, to obey his commands. I'm gladly, willingly, readily placing myself under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Now, let me ask her, is that your experience this morning? Whose side are you on? But in one respect, we can certainly speak of Jesus as being one of us, can't we? He was one of us. He lived in a family. He went to work. He slept. He wept. He was hungry and he was thirsty. Yet, in another sense, there was no one like him. Truly superior. In all respects, one like no other. And yet, when Peter was writing his first letter... Uh, in chapter 5 of that first letter of Peter, verse 5, he gives instruction to some younger men. He says, young men, in the same way, be submissive. There it is. Be submissive to those who are older. Clothe yourselves, yourselves with humility towards one another. And there's no question there that the commentators uh, say that what Peter was thinking about there was an occasion in the upper room before Jesus began to really outline uh, uh, the coming of the Holy Spirit and what would happen to him and before he prayed his high priestly prayer, uh, where in the upper room, according to John chapter 13, verse 4, Jesus then got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel round his waist, poured water into a bowl and began to wash his disciples' feet drying them with the towel wrapped around him. It was an object lesson, as we understand. Firstly, in, in thoughtfulness, as their feet had not been washed. Consideration. Attentiveness. Kindness. Sadly, none of the other disciples had cottoned on to that. And they felt it was something beneath them anyway. A, a, a servant should have done that. They were, they were too good for that. Now think of that in terms of family life and work life and church life. Speaking recently to a, to a pastor. He's been a pastor for, for, for many, many years. Uh, and I said, now, uh, are you at that point in your life where you, um, you, you, you feel, you know, there are things now you, you, you don't need to do because... Uh, You've been a pastor for so, so long? Oh, no, he said. No. He said, when I became a pastor, the, the, the thought came to me that the, this is the, the, the greatest privilege anyone can ever have is to be a servant of the Lord. That's the pinnacle, to be a servant of the Lord. And in whatever it, that means in terms of service, you will do it. So we had a little chat. He said, yes, he said, I've... I've had my hand down the drains to clear it all away so that the water can flow outside the building. And when, when we talked about uh, unblocking toilets and drains, well, yes, we are prepared to do anything. 
Now, in one sense, you see that same principle here in terms of the motivation. The greatest example, of course, is the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, isn't it? He didn't need to experience the cross. He had done no wrong himself. He, he suffered for no sins of his own. But to secure our pardon, to secure our peace with God, uh, to secure our place in the kingdom of God, the Lord Jesus Christ fully, voluntarily submitted himself to the will of the Father. Now, was he at that point in any sense inferior to the Father or to the Spirit? No, there is what we call this voluntary submission, a willingness to step down. We reckon the illustration in the past, something going on, a problem on the shop floor. There's a problem on the factory floor. The difficulties are there. You have perhaps three of the managers up in the office. They do all the phone calls and that. They, they don't muck in and get down there on the floor. But if there's a problem on the ground floor, if there's a problem on the factory floor, well, one of the three has to put on his overalls and go down there. And in one sense, it's the simple illustration that the Lord Jesus, in that sense, put on the overalls of humanity. He came onto the factory floor and he dealt with the problem. And he removed it out of the way once and for all. He submitted himself to the will of the Father. And this is what the verse is telling us. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. When you think of what he's done, and for me the guilty one, can you wonder why it is I love him so? Yet, as we've said, we know the Son of God was co-equal and co-eternal with the Father and the Spirit, yet he voluntarily and willingly came to accomplish all that was required so that we could have a fresh start and be brought into the family of God. So we conclude this morning. A spirit-filled believer is always joyful. They might not always be happy. Things might not always be working out well for them. But there's a sense of joy in their hearts. A joy, a song of praise to their God for such a salvation. Secondly, they're always thankful. Thankful for what God has done. Thankful for who God is. And then thirdly, as we've noticed this morning, gladly and willing to submit themselves to Christ and also to one another in the fear uh, or reverence of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they understand that each believer is precious in God's sight and uh, that to become a member of the family of God is the greatest privilege we can know. Well, may God challenge us with regards to our attitudes and our thoughts and our actions in the days and weeks to come. Amen.